What to do, fam? It has been a minute since I've released a podcast. I've been trying to find the proper work-life balance um, since I got back to on it at the beginning of the year. But you're going to be seeing a couple more podcasts come out <clears throat> more consistently in the next couple of weeks. Today we have on Dr. Miles Neal, and he's a PsyD and is also a Buddhist psychotherapist who is in private practice and the founder of the two-year online contemplative studies program. He's the author of Gradual Awakening and co-editor of Advances in Contemplative Psychotherapy. Miles is a faculty member of the Tibet House and the Wheel Cornell Medical College. He has more than 20 years integrating the mind science and the meditative practices of Tibetan Buddhism with psychotherapy, trauma research, and neuroscience. Miles is a forerunner in the emerging field of contemplative psychotherapy and leads pilgrimages around the Buddhist's world. I love that this podcast gives me the opportunity to talk to experts in the world. And I love getting to know personally these people's stories and how they see the world and how human they are. And this podcast was no different. Um, you guys are really going to enjoy this one. He brought a lot of self-awareness to the podcast and uh, it was also really interesting. He had a couple of moments where uh, he broke the script that I normally use in these podcasts and he flipped it on me. And it was amazing. Um, if you guys want to support the podcast, the most direct way that you can do that is go leave me a review on iTunes. That's something that people like Neil will go look at to see if this is, you know, something that's worth their time. It's kind of the way the dance is played. And um, share the podcast with anybody that you think it might help. It's one of my life honors to be able to do this. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. I love you guys. Namaste. <laughs> Miles, thank you for coming on the podcast. You were connected to me through one of my closest podcasting and just meat suit brothers, Michael Phillips. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And the first question that I like to ask to get things rolling is, let's say that I met you, I don't know you, and you just finished doing something that puts you into a flow state. A, what is that thing? And B, if I asked you, who are you and what do you well, do? Well, thanks so much to meet you, Eric. And it's always nice to be one degree of separation from a whole portal that was right under my nose the entire time and then have uh, a good friend introduce <laughs> us into a wide new, uh, wide new world. So that's an incredible thing. Uh, there's always someone right next to you that you don't realize it's doing something incredible. That's the that's one of the beautiful beautiful things about life is uh, there's so many amazing people doing amazing things and they're all around all the time, and then suddenly you know what's right beneath your nose just opens up into a whole new world and that that's an amazing thing about life. Uh, as far as flow states, I mean yeah. I'm at my best when I'm teaching. I I, I definitely feel when I'm. Uh, surrounded by very eager, earnest uh, students, peers, friends, and colleagues, and we're just down and going for it. And I've got three hours, and we just hit it, and we hit the note, and we're all in the same 
uh, vibe and we are, um, we are um, tapping the stream of the Dharma. I feel every part of my being completely aligned. Uh, all my insecurities, which there are many and quite abundant, uh, seem to just temporarily be suspended or be immersed in, be um, assumed. And I feel my life's purpose and my compass setting for life and evolution fully aligned. And I don't feel any better. I, 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 I rarely in my life uh, do I feel more fully alive and more fully uh, galvanized and vibrant and purposeful uh, than when I'm teaching and with my peers and friends and students uh, doing something that I love. And so let's say that you step off of stage. I was in the crowd. I got to experience you teach. And for some reason, I'm very dense, and I still felt compelled to ask you, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? I'm, I'm a psychologist and a Buddhist teacher. I live in New York City. I um, come from a lot of insecurity, fear, and scarcity mentality. I have been fully incubated and immersed in a scarcity mentality. I have battled with depression and anxiety for a very long time. Uh, I still have a, a long way to go, but I, I uh, also very early on found uh, Buddhist teachings and then later uh, psychological teachings, and I have been fully committed to understanding myself and, and in the process understanding others and working with others and also bringing them into the field uh, of a new paradigm, uh, one that has existed on this planet for a very, very long time, but has slowly, the encroachment of modernity has begun to uh, obscure the sacred wisdom cultures that really have kept me alive. So I feel in my own way, I am, uh, I am a champion of wisdom cultures. I try to, I, I, and if you could use one analogy, I like to see myself as a ferry boatman that brings people across mm. the river to really, really great masters and really sincere, authentic wisdom lineages that could really hold out the promise of a new way of living on the on the planet as we hit eight billion and uh, and uh, all the uh, you know the various ways that we could destroy ourselves, uh, self created mass extinction. I think that these wisdom cultures are the are, are you know hold out a, a way that we could live together, and I see myself as someone who who has invested their life in trying to maintain, preserve, and understand, appreciate, uh, support uh, those traditions, and I see myself as someone who who can take um, our current modern culture as a as a ferry boat or a bridge uh, to to the ancient wisdom traditions. I fucking love that. One of the metaphors that comes up for me about what I feel I'm doing is a bridge. And on one level, we're both doing the same thing. And we can touch on that more because I think it's fascinating, the metaphors that we use to describe ourselves. How would your best friend describe uh, you and what you do? Oh, uh, my best friend. I mean, my best friend and I, his name is Bunny. He lives in India. Uh, we went to college together and he knew even in college I was already a nut. So I guess he would call me a nut. A fanatic, a full fanatic, a crazed <laughs> fanatic. I mean, I, I have I have been obsessed with Buddhism and and Dharma since the age of eighteen, really nineteen. And then when I got my first taste in India at twenty, that was it. And and so this friend of mine, Bunny, who, who's actually Indian, lives in Mumbai and Goa. Um, you know, we have 
you know, his, his, his passion is music. That's his portal into the, into the divine. And so we are, mm. and, you know, he has brought yeah. me into his world and shared music with me. And I've brought him into my world and shared Dharma with me. And we've had a lifelong friendship, but I think, I think he thinks I'm a nut, you know, well, he's a nut too. So that, that's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not, uh, I have never been, um, I have never fit in. Eric to be to I have I have been a yeah. square peg in trying to fit in for a very long time and feeling very uh, very lost and and um, unsure of myself because I have not fit into the conventions and at a certain point I I decided I just I just had to be true to myself and 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 tear down the conventions because actually frankly I actually resent a lot of the conventions I think that they're they're yeah. they can be um, straitjackets and very um, a confining of the true potentials that I that I have come to learn is in all living beings. And so I and I and I have come my nuttiness has then crossed boundaries and I've come to um, have a, a sort of uh, gain a kind of reputation as someone who's extremely critical of culture. And, and that's not an easy cross to bear yeah. because no one likes somebody who's critical. It often bleeds yeah. into yeah. someone who's judgmental. And actually, I'm coming. I'm. I make a lot of cultural critiques from the point of view of alerting people to the dangers of what the siren songs of their culture are 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 uh, brainwashing them to to believe. And yet, it is you know, in, in at times, it has really hindered my career and my and it has tapped into my deepest uh, seated insecurities. And so, it has made it a very rough ride. Um, um, but not. But nevertheless, it is who I am. Like it just is who I am. And so I have to, I have to honor that despite all the challenges it poses. Absolutely. And how would he describe what you're doing in the world from his uh, Following my heart. I think that's what he would say. It'd be like, you know, he has this uh, very nice um, term that he calls uh, play your beat or follow your beat or uh, live your beat because he's a musician, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. he's... He's trained with some very high re respected people in both the Hindustani Indian classical, but also the uh, world cult world music culture. Someone by the name of Jamie Haddad, who is uh, Paul Simon's percussionist, and uh, and Jamie Haddad taught Bunny this one quote, which I really love, which is "Love your beat." You know, just play your fucking beat. Find what your beat is. Don't worry about this one or that one don't worry about what the what the what the rhythm rhythm of your culture is what the rhythm of your society is what the rhythm of your family system is don't worry about all those things yes you have to go to school yes you have to learn how to play your your rudiments yes you have to go play chords but at a certain point after you've been indoctrinated into how to play then fucking find your beat that's your purpose find your beat and love your beat not only find it but love it play it uh, don't let anyone drown you out, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's what he would say about me. And I, and I, I think the same about him. Uh, he has definitely found his, I saw, I watched him find his beat when he was 20. He watched me find my beat when we were 20. It's now 24 years later. And uh, I think now we're growing into a full love of our own beats. That's fucking beautiful, man. Um, a metaphor that I often use to help people, so um, I'm like, I'm a mindset coach for the company that I work at and we have a mastermind and we work with about a hundred to 150 people per year who you could say are like on the path. And one of the most common things that we hear from them that they want help on is once they start 
listening to their true song, they can feel that they become isolated for a while. And the metaphor that constantly comes up for me is that when you're in the conditioning of your culture, you're an out-of-tune instrument in a symphony of instruments that are tuned to your untunedness. And those are all the relationships that you have in your life. And as you slowly start to hear your true song and you start to honor it and play it, you start to tune your instrument. And to all the other instruments in the symphony of your relationships, you then sound like the untuned instrument. But the longer you play your true tune, the people in your symphony that are meant to rise with you will. And the beautiful thing is that you will then find the other instruments that are already on that tune. And so I just love that idea. That's a beautiful. It's a beautiful analogy, beautiful metaphor. It's it's lovely. I, I really like it. And I guess you said you mentioned uh, some of the people in the training program find themselves once they start following. I guess we would call Joseph Carroll's "Follow Your Bliss." Uh, there is the sense that you yeah. uh, go off terrain, you cross the threshold, and you go into a dark spell where you're isolated, and and that and thus beginning your hero's journey. And I think everybody recognizes that, and that that's uh, part and parcel of the path. I mean, you. It's not an easy, it's finding Amen. yourself is not an easy thing. Fuck anyone who tells you that it is. It's, it's not, it, it's meant <laughs> to kill you. You have to die. You, yep. you were born to be in this orchestra and it's, and you're trying to fit in and, and God bless them. But those people that have really found their way to fit in, they're the ones that are most lost. It's the people that go listen to yeah. their intuition and go, I don't belong here. This is not where I belong. Let me start listening to something inside of me. That thing takes you off 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 out of the orchestra for a little while and temporarily you are fucking lost and you're afraid and you're no longer and you're a social creature and so you want to be amongst others but you 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 start to prioritize this inner calling or conviction that you don't quite know exactly what it is and then you start following it but for a period there and maybe you circle back and deepen it and deepen and deepen it. And so you're always constantly coming up against being lost, but you grow mo more and more competent at being lost. But that initial being lost, that's a real killer. And it's supposed to be a fucking killer. It's supposed to tear you down. And you know why? Because, and you know this, Eric, and I'm sure this is actually part of your training program. I imagine it is. Every world culture has had a rites of passage except for ours. Yeah. And we have lost this, yeah. but young boys and young girls were separated from the pack. In other words, using your analogy, they yeah. were separated from the orchestra and they were put out in the wilderness or they were put out or they, or they were given some uh, psychotropic or they were uh, put amidst a, uh, a very dark cavern or they went into a sweat lodge or they went into the desert alone or something like that happened, which utterly terrified them and broke the shackles of whatever security and comfort blanket that they had, not to paralyze them, and but to bring them to the to, to death's door. And so that they could have yeah. a reawakening and a real rebirth in life, in life, a, re a, a near death rebirth in life to prepare them to be honest stewards of their cultures or their societies or their tribes. And so it can never be easy. It's not meant to be easy. Anybody who's looking for easy is not ready. This is not the path for you. And this brings me to the next question. Your closest romantic lover, how would they describe who you are? Oh, and what well, you're doing the closest, the, the closer you get, the more complicated it is. So there's no, you know, the, you know, because it's like the, the closer you look at a, at some structure, the more the more complexity there is. So, like my wife, 
who's a psychologist and a yoga teacher and a Dharma practitioner through and through, is not shy about her critique of me. <laughs> In other words, she doesn't hold back and she, and she, uh, she, she can see, she's got the clearest view on my blind spot. Uh, and and one thing I love about her, yeah. although she she is you know persistent at pointing me out, is she's fucking right. I don't like it all the time, but she's fucking right. So she's my biggest critic. Critic, I would yeah. say she's my biggest critic, but she's also my greatest champion. And and I and I I, I one thing I've discovered my about myself due to my own processing of my childhood trauma is I don't welcome in love easily. It's not it's not only that um, it's not mm. only uh, the challenge, I, I'm easier at the challenge than I am at accepting the love. You know, so I, <laughs> Same. she's she's unconditionally loving and that unconditionally loving is not always fluffy. Sometimes that unconditional love is very hard. Uh, sometimes it's very soft. Right. Uh, when it's very, very hard, it's too close to the bone. It can take me hours or days to process what she's trying to alert me to. But I, uncannily and ironically, it's also when she's very tender and love is unconditionally distributed uh, that I also have a hard time processing that. So that's a very interesting thing, too. And so how would she describe? I think she I, I think I think she is amazed by me that uh, uh, she would say that I um, uh, I'm determined. I'm 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 relentless. I, I have I have. Um, uh, when when I'm passion, I'm pa extremely passionate, and it gets me into trouble. Of course, yeah. I That's mean, I, I, mean here, yeah. I just I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I only care about the truth, and and it gets me into so much trouble. I it gets because I I don't know the fucking truth sometimes, and I think I do, and that gets me into trouble. Or you're not ready for the truth, yeah. and that gets me into trouble. Or whatever the pr the pursuit of truth is a very hard game but i think she really respects the passion that i have for my drive for truth and i think that's what resonates amongst my students and my peers and my colleagues i think that they unabashedly see my passion and my determination and my conviction and so the way that she would describe what you're doing in the world is a unrelenting i think search so and i think that that would be yeah, i mean passionate would probably be probably boo the word that she uses. And then, and then, you know, she then, and then on the other side, she could say, you can become too impassioned or too emboldened or too, too, uh, too courageous or too ambitious, you know, like it, she, she would point to the same characteristic and see when it's uh, well-tempered and aligned, it becomes a beautiful service for my own evolution and others. And it can be a, a big trap and a big uh, hindrance on the path. How would your father describe who you are and what you do? Well, that's a tough one. You know, I have, I, my father passed 12 years ago, but he was, uh, we had a very challenging relationship and I, my father was a narcissistic person. You know, he was very self-involved and, uh, he was also an alcoholic. And so, you know, he, it was very deceptive for my early years because he would call me his prince. And mm. so when you're a young kid and you're the apple of your father's eye, you, you feel um, enamored or lulled, lulled into hypno hypnosis of your uh, significance. But if you look closely at what he was yeah. saying, the prince also refers or assumes something else, so that, that he's the king. 
<laughs> yes. Okay. And so when, yeah. and so when you're a young kid and you're the prince of the king, you feel special. But when you come of age, the prince also wants to be their own king. And when the king uh, feels that tension, then there can be um, a backlash. And my dad's backlash was very subtle. From the outside perspective, anyone who would have looked in would have said, your dad loved you so much. You are the apple of his eye. You were his everything. But behind closed doors and very in a very subtle vibration, anything that would challenge his position or his status quo or his narcissistic aggrandizement or his grandiosity or his fantasy about his self uh, um, infatuation, anything that would pose a challenge to that would be met with a very deep and insidious backlash. And so I, I, I feel yeah. like my dad never truly knew me. In fact, I don't, I wouldn't personalize yeah, right. it. Anybody who's dealt with a narcissistic parent knows what it's like not to be seen. I don't think I was ever really yeah. fully seen. What I what I think I was for my dad in his pathology was really just a mirror for his own self-esteem. So I don't think I ever yeah. truly, you know, when I was coming up, you know, he never, he was not alive when I really made a career stab at being a psychologist and a Buddhist teacher. But, you know, if we look back at high school and I was pretty good defender in basketball or I liked photography and he, you know, these were all just indications of what a good father he was. They weren't, there was never really a discussion. I'll never forget it. Like once I traded in the Michael Jordan posters for the Dharma books and my room was no longer posterized, <laughs> you know, back in the eighties with the Michael Jordan posters, but slowly it became a Dharma, you know, an infatuation with the East and mystical traditions and growing even into college and then making this my bread and butter and actually being a teacher my father never once asked me what my interest in Buddhism was, even though it had become so central to my identity. And I think, yeah. and so I think just to answer your question in all fairness, I don't think my dad ever really knew me as sad, as sad as that is. I think he loved what he saw through his lens in the way that he saw it, but it was only yeah. as an extension of him. And I just have to be very brutally honest about that. Yeah, man. Thank you. How would your mother describe you and what you're doing? I think my mom also sees me as incredibly passionate. I, I think she's also not all that interested in what I do. And and, and I've, I've come to accept that. I mean, we don't all have to share the same interests. I think she's a big fan and a big supporter. But, I, you know, I just there there comes a point where you have to recognize that not everyone is really part of your tribe, even though they may be blood ties. I, I've, I've yeah, you know. Man. I'm not out to convert the masses. I want to align with the people that are on the quest. And there are people in my family and in my bloodlines and in my near associates and Zoom colleagues that are not on that page and I'm not out to convert them. But they but then let's just be very honest that they don't they don't really have enough interest to really know who you are. And I think that that brings me to the last of these type of questions, and it's probably going to be a very different answer. Um, when you're in the depths of a psychedelic experience or an initiation rite or deep in your personal meditation practice and you come face to face with whatever the word that you would use to describe the highest spiritual type of consciousness, when that thing witnesses you, how would that thing describe what you are and what you're doing? 
free free yeah I mean because it's not you anymore everything that we've just described is the conventional me which I I'm not opposed to the conventional me I don't hold the view that the ultimate is the only truth I hold true non-dualism the cheap non-dualism that's floating around in pop culture right now prizes or prioritizes the ultimate truth and disparages the conventional truth and to me that's not true non-dualism non-dualism rep uh, respects the difference between culture uh, conventional reality and ultimate reality preserves the distinction between the two but then sees them as one reality and so yeah. i think it's perfectly fine that I have a miles in time and space that's 44, father of two, psychologist, <laughs> Buddhist teacher, incredibly impassioned, comes from an, ins uh, an alcohol background with incredible insecurities and traumas and inadequacies and panic disorder and depression, but is also incredibly impassioned and is outspoken and is not afraid to be, to, to put forward a cultural critique. All of those are conventional aspects of my personality in time and space. But when I'm in the flow, all that goes away. It all goes away. And there is something that comes through me that is bigger than me that, that I can't claim to be me anymore. Yeah. And from that perspective, whether you call that reality, whether you call that lineage, whether you call that divine, whatever word you want to throw for that, that thing, that experience, that reality is looking back at me going, we are free here. Mm. We are free for this moment. And then that moment ends <laughs> and that moment, and then that moment, and then you reappear. But I'm, I'm not of the opinion anymore that the reappearance is any different than the disappearance. It's, it's the yeah. same thing. It's just looking at it from two different vantage points. And, and I'm not about trying to escape myself anymore in order to live somehow in perpetuity in those spaces. What the, what the message is for me is bringing that right. clarity and that sense of freedom into my conventional life and seeing my conventional life as just an art form. It's easy to say that. It's much more difficult to do it. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And again, it brings to me the metaphor of the symphony, like the in-between notes, that's the true, true song. And that's when we connect to that part of us that is completely free. But it'd be a very boring song to most people if it was just continued silence. It's the interruption of the silence Expression. by the instrument that we are, which is a part of the song and is what makes it beautiful. And so... The first instrument sound your instrument ever made, what do you remember as your first experience as Miles? Maybe you were three or four. That tends to be when it first happens. What do you remember being the first experience that you've When you When recorded? I thought I heard your, uh, your question, it was the first uh, true experience of me. Is that what you're asking? Maybe well, the first I, breakthrough or the first uh, moment I had a kind of dawning of recognition? I I guess it would be the first experience of your um, unconventional or of the conditioned truth. So like your first ego experience, like when you were three or four, the, the very first thing that you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my, you asked me to, to speak free form. I, my first association is me uh, playing by myself. 
I played a lot by myself. I was by myself a lot. I, both my parents were very ambitious and industrious. My father was a broker and my mother was an interior mm. designer and they both were very career oriented and which meant that they were both working and loved their work and very passionate yeah. in their work. And they were also interested in networking and entertaining. And so after work, they also had a lot of obligations and, and parties and, and, um, you know, you know, uh, dinner parties and, and they would drink a lot and they were either invested in their careers, but then their careers would bleed into free time. And so I feel like, and my brother was also five years older. And when you have a sibling five years older, you might as well not have a brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I mean, yeah, my brother was five huh? years older too. So then is there, is there one below you? Um, so yeah, I was actually the middle child growing up. I have a sister that's one year younger. And then when I was 10, my older brother, who's my half brother, he kind of left the house and my mom had a child. And so I kind of became the oldest sibling when I was 10. So I have this weird mix of being the mm. middle child yeah. and then being Family the Family dynamics child. are very key. They're very part they're, uh, they're very critical to understanding everybody's conventional story. Nevertheless, I mean, nevertheless, I mean, Absolutely. I was alone to answer your question. My, my, my earliest memories are of me playing in the back room with my toys, uh, by myself. And I, I guess, yeah. And what's the primary emotion that you have attached to that first memory? Like the very first one that comes to mind, what's the primary emotion? As I look back, I would probably say loneliness. Um, I don't know if I actually would have registered that then, but looking back, looking back, I would probably superimpose on that, that I was normalized or habituated to right. feel loneliness as just how it was. What do you remember being the first story that really captured your mind as a young boy, like five or six or seven, either a movie or a book or just a story you heard someone tell? What's the first thing that comes to mind? It tends for a lot of people to be like a Disney movie. But for you, what was the first story that really At captured five you? or six or seven or ten, you know, i got to be brutally honest. I, 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 I did not read. I was not read to. Uh, we had one channel on the television because I grew up in Hong Kong. And at the time, Hong Kong only had one English channel. I had no videos. Mm -mm. I was, I had no music. I didn't have cassettes. I didn't like music. I didn't have a lot of influences, to be honest, looking back. Like I, I, I'm, to be brutally honest, I, I could fabricate yeah. something, but I would be drawing a blank at that phase of my life. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe I was so severely traumatized. I don't have a lot of memories from eight or nine or 10, but I also didn't have a lot of, Yeah. I don't really recall inspiring influences either. I mean, they came, the inspiration came much later. The inspiration came when I was, yeah. by the time I was 14, I was burning and cutting myself. So it, 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 it had gotten really bad. And, and then I remember yeah. finding the book Siddhartha. So, I mean, that's much later than what you're asking. You know, that's much later than what you're Perfect. asking. But if it's the first story that you remember yeah. seizing you, it is the right answer. And that's that's one of my favorite stories. I remember I first read it when I was 18 or 19, and it deeply inspired me. 
And this is one of my favorite questions to ask. So, hey, do you do this for a living? Because you're really hard. good at this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've done a lot of podcasts, but Eric, I feel like you. I mean, you're very. Um, I can feel the authenticity, and I really like the way that you're leading the conversation. And I just want to ask, like, what? How are you feeling right now? What's it like for you? What's it like for you? Yeah, man. This is truly one of my favorite things to do with my life, period. I want to do it for the rest of my life. And it's so I'm I'm deeply fascinated with stories. And one of my favorite quotes of all time is by Carl Jung. And it's that men do not have ideas. Ideas have men. And um, through dancing with psychedelics and reading a lot of psychology books, I kind of um, discovered that we as children are intuitively attracted to the stories that resonate with our true song and that the way that we emerge into our true song starts with the stories and the people that inspire us. And this podcast is a constant exploration for me to um, understand and bring forward people's stories and it feels like it's part of what i'm well i guess that's what i'm picking up on because i can i can feel your authenticity and i can feel your sincerity and i feel like what you've just described makes me it's confirming that you're in your flow right now so that that brings me into a level of comfort with you even though you're a complete fucking stranger and so just at a meta (laughs) level i think i think both of us have been on a journey where we've discovered a few things about human psychology and spirituality and alignment and truth. But there is also this level of just feeling that. And I'm feeling that with you. I feel comfortable with you. I feel like I trust you. I feel like you, you have done this a number of times and I, you, you have a kind of map in your mind and I, I don't know, I I don't know where that map is going to go, but it's, but it's okay. Like I feel like you're guiding me through a conversation and eliciting certain responses and reactions and, but more importantly, you're enjoying it. You're in your flow state. You're doing what you do. You're an expression of your beat right now. And that, and that is resonating for me, even though I don't know exactly where it's going to unfold. It's like, a, it's like a pleasure. So let me just yeah. pause and say, thank you for that. Thank you, brother. And that's received. And I appreciate you taking the time to articulate. Yeah, it's that. nice. It's nice. It's nice. It's a nice thing to have found your calling and then to serve others. And then so your podcast, then your listeners enjoy. And not only do they enjoy just on a pleasure basis, but they learn something. Not only do they learn something, but then they apply something, they find themselves. And so I guess that's to come full circle, when I read Siddhartha, it was about a human being's journey of following their intuition, despite what the cultural programming or the of, or the the mandate of the palace or the mandate of the society is someone. It was a true hero's journey. It was my first exposure to the monomyth at a time where it was critical between life and death for me at 16. Yeah. And that brings me to, this is maybe my favorite question to ask people, period. And it's, if you had to retell the Siddhartha story to one of your children as a bedtime story, and let's say that they're about 10 years old, they're deeply curious, it's a Friday night, and you're going to take the time to tell them the story, 
Um, would you please take a couple of minutes to tell the listeners as if they were your child the bedtime story of yeah, Siddhartha? Yeah, just make it personal. So my kid, Bodhi, he's five, he's going to be six, and I'd say, Bodhi, you're going to go to school tomorrow, right? And you have, you know, the teacher's going to ask you to do this or that, and do you really want to do it? And 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 he would say, no. And I'd say, Bodhi, what, what, can you tell me what you really, really want to do? Saying that he would, he's at an age where he's not that, um, it's not that clear. It's not that clear what he wants to do. And so I'd I keep asking him again and again and again, can you feel something? Can you feel something in your tummy? Do you have any, do you have any, um, any fantasies? Do you have any pictures in your mind? Uh, do you have any songs in your mind? I would just keep asking him what it is that inspires him, what it is that uh, is calling him, what it is that's coming up for him. And then as soon as he have a little bite, you know, like a little, you know, crab that bites on something, you know, then I would just like use my energy to help him go. And sometimes we're laying in bed and we will drop the actual storybook and and he will go with one or two words and then it will catch steam. It will, it will be like a snowball. And he'll create a story in bed, eight o'clock, 8.30 at night, he'll tell a whole story and I'll just listen. And I'll have a, I'll have a tear roll yeah. down my eye because I'm thinking this is Bodhi's mind, free of any conditioning, free of any um, frameworks free of anybody else's imposed storyline. He's just, he's got an incredibly creative mind if given half a chance. And then he'll go to school and they will throw down so much structure down his fucking head. And then at 8.30 at night, it's my responsibility <laughs> to do that and give him full permission and full license to, for the story not to make sense, brother. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to be yours. Yeah. Amen. And so I want to challenge you because let's imagine that the listeners don't know the Siddhartha story and they're like, dad, I know you want me to tell a story, but I don't want to think. I just want to hear you tell this story. And so if you had to tell the story of Siddhartha as, as it were the story uh, to the listeners, would you be no. willing to tell us the story? No, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because right. anyone can go pick up, up, pick up the book and let it be its own portal for you. I think the most important thing is the application, like what the story meant for me or what the story meant for you. So let me fucking turn the thing around. What does it mean for you, Eric? What did it do for you? What did it do for you? Not the story, but what did it do for you? Where did it land for you? Yeah, so the story, it's been probably nine years since I read it, but the story of Siddhartha for me, what it did is it gave me a map of a young man who could have said no to his hero's journey and accepted the, de the decadence and the opulence given to him by you know his father and his culture. And on one level, I had that, but he decided to say no to that. And he went on a journey. And he didn't, you know, on one level he wasn't prepared, but on a very different level he was completely prepared. And he started saying yes to adventures. And he started learning through these adventures. And he drank deeply from each of the experiences that arose for him along this adventure. And 
the drinking deeply of life eventually led him to realizing that the only way to be was to release all the opulence and to simply be in his Tao. And, you know, he slowly comes to age. I, I feel like in Siddhartha, I remember that he eventually had a family and then he showed up as a father. And then once he raised the children to adulthood, he then began his mm -hmm. spiritual pursuit. But that might just be me anthropomorphizing what I see as my path onto what I remember, which is one of the beauties of why I ask people to retell these stories. Because what I find is that the way the human mind works, when people have to retell their favorite story, especially if they don't remember the details, the human mind can't help but project into the empty spaces of the story, yeah. their story. And then you get to see what their story is now. And it's why it's my favorite question is that. Well, why not just cut to the without, chase and have someone just say their, what their story is? Are you, are you thinking that you need to have the map and the model first to extrapolate? Yeah, what I find is that, you know, you are not an average guest, but for most people, because I, I specifically like to have a lot of interviews with quote unquote normal people. And like what that means is people who aren't doing something in a way that culture normally would reflect as, you know, them being successful or profound or whatever. And most people are unconscious to the story that they're telling themselves. And so I have these questions to try to gently bring the story out of them. But you're clearly someone who knows his story. And so I could just ask you directly, and you've already answered it, you know, that on one level, your story is the Siddhartha story. Yeah, that's right. I'm living Siddhartha's story. And, but, but more importantly, even the Siddhartha story is a story of the Buddha story. And even the Buddha story is just a story. So it's, and this is what Joseph Campbell's great contribution is, is there's a map and then there's your life. And I guess I've just, no, I guess that's what you're appreciating about me too, is I know that and I take that for granted. And so then I'm just purely interested in people's real lives and their real stories, which is why I'm like interested in what Siddhartha means for you. So I asked you, I, I threw the question unglamorously back at you. And, and then you, you, you told about the archetype, but then I'm really interested in how did it help you? Like, how did it help you get here? How did that story, you said you, you read it eight years ago. Did I hear that right? Eight or nine years ago? So you read that. Yeah, You're, about, what, yeah, what age were yeah. you when you read it? 2021, um, was it critical? Was it like, a, was it a life or death? Was it uh, was it dark night of the soul for you? Were you lost? Were you looking? What was it? Yeah, on one level, I was. Um, so when I was about 20, Growing up in high school, I thought I was the smartest motherfucker because nobody could out-debate me. And I would, you know, disrupt all my classes because I would debate the teacher. And I hid behind my adolescent fear of not knowing what the fuck is going on and not wanting to try to learn by just trying to win debates. And then I went to college and I basically failed all my classes my first year. But because I had my mother's GI Bill, the college, which should have expelled me because my GPA was, I think, uh, 0.7, um, they did not expel me because they wanted my money. And I started smoking weed. Um, and I remember I was watching a stand-up special by a comedian, 
And I'll never forget it, man. I think I was 19. And he made this joke about like, we all think that we're the smart people in this culture, but if the electricity went out, what would we do? You would do what I would do. And you would sit down and you would wait. And you'd be like, these fucking idiots can't get the power back on. And then he went down this whole rabbit hole of like, if all the smart people died, we would fucking die. You would die. You, you, you don't know how the lights work. You don't know how this microphone works. You don't know how to make a cell phone. And I remember just you having this moment. You don't know how to make a fire. I was 19, I was in, <laughs> you, you, you die in 24 yeah, hours. Yeah. And I was in my room alone. And I just had this existential shift where I recognized how vulnerable and non-competent I was. And it just, it created this life shift where I started reading and I started humbling myself to the fact that I don't know. And one of the very first mentors in the non-physical for me was the Buddha. And I remember reading Siddhartha and just having this deep knowing that I had to live like that in the sense of I had to humble myself to learning from mentors because there's this whole stream in Siddhartha where he basically goes and finds mentors and drinks deeply from what they have to teach him. And then he goes on to the next teacher. And the reason that I'm at the point in my life at the age that I am at is because, you know, I had that moment at 19 and I started to bow before mentors. And so one was Buddha. One was Alan Watts, one was Terrence McKenna, one was Mushrooms itself. Um, eventually, you know, I got into Carl Jung, um, I got into Nietzsche, uh, and you know, this has slowly brought me to where I'm at now. Like one of the mentors that I found that was actually alive is now my boss, and you know, I work with him and for him, you know, and eventually I'll move on to the next. But yeah, Siddhartha for me was one of the orienting stories for my ego about how to be. Yeah. Yeah. And see, I think that's, I think that's very rich. I I like, I like the personal more than the metaphor or the template. And I, and I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that's exactly, I, that's exactly the same story that I lived. I, my physical real life story sounds very very similar to that 16 i read siddhartha i'm incredibly depressed i'm near suicidal cutting burning i don't feel part of my family i don't feel part of my my school i don't feel part of my culture i have i've been indoctrinated into a materialistic world where the only game in town is success wealth and fame it doesn't resonate for me and I have nowhere to be and nowhere to go. And then boom, there's Siddhartha. Follow your bliss, follow your intuition, go on. a. There's veer off, veer off terrain, veer off the, veer off the course onto the open terrain. And thus begins a succession of mentors. So there were three particular in my high school. One was a psychologist, one was a Buddhist teacher, and one was a Christian mystic. I, I ended up befriending them and becoming so close with them that they were closer to me, even though we had 20 years apart in age, than my own uh, peer group. And I spent the next two or three years hanging out with them after school, going to their houses, going on hikes with them, uh, learning how to meditate with them, learning how to share with them, learning how to feel. Uh, and I felt held by them. I felt truly seen, understood, appreciated, valued, included, 
Uh, and that was the breadcrumb trail on the path that then led me to college and another whole succession of mentors. And then before I knew it, I was in India. There are other gurus and mentors there. And so that that is the Siddhartha story for me. I was looking for the tribe, the leadership, the paradigm shift, the way of how do, how do I live? I mean, how the fuck do I live when the only game in town is go to school, get a degree, get married, have a few puppies, uh, you know, work your ass off, make a bunch of money with your money, have as many pleasant experiences as you can, knowing that those experiences are going to expire, go after even bigger ones. And that is it. That's all she wrote. And it never, ever did it ever make sense to me. Even in my young, impressionable mind of 13, 14, 15, I knew, I knew that couldn't be all there was. And then it wasn't until I was 20, I was in India, I had actually designed a course of study in college that would take me out of academia because I, I, like you, was not going to do well if I just stayed in the normal bowels of the curriculum. And, yeah. and so I got lucky with a mentor to design my own program that would then take me for field research to India to study in a monastery for five months. That's amazing. And I was 20 years old in India and I had found my way to a monastery. I was living with the monks and getting up at 5.30 and doing meditation, studying philosophy and going for walks to the other monasteries in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha gained enlightenment, which is what the Siddhartha story is based off of the actual enlightenment of the Buddha and his own quest for, for you know, his own challenge to the modern contemporary culture of his time and the religious aspect of his time and his own quest to discover for himself his truth and then sitting down under the tree. And so here I am with a teacher in India at 20. I remember very clearly, and I've told this story many times, but it's so, it's like the archetypal moment in my own flesh and blood was yeah. to get up very early in the morning with this teacher his name was Godwin. He was Sri Lankan. He was a Vipassana master, insight meditation master, but very humble and very sweet and very kind. And uh, we got up together at 4.30 before the sunrise. Maybe it was around 5. We walked hand in hand, as is the case for men to do in those cultures. It's not, uh, there's no sort of homophobic undertones to that kind of thing. It's just embracing. And we walked hand in hand down a dusty yeah. road to the path where that led to the site where the Buddha sat down and the very tree he sat down under to gain enlightenment. And we sat there and meditated. And I remember thinking as the Whoa. dawn broke, sitting under the tree of enlightenment with this teacher that was basically the epitome of unconditional love, someone whose heart was fully open and, and someone in whom I felt I was okay, I was adequate. And that I've ever having already explained my story with my own father, where I never felt adequate and never felt seen. Here was the antithesis come full circle at 20 years old under the tree and in the light of enlightenment, feeling fully seen and held unconditionally with all my wounds and all my insecurities and, and also in silence, brother. It wasn't like we were having a conversation under that tree. We were just sitting. Mm. We were just sitting together. There wasn't there was no need for there to be anything to be said. Yeah, so that was, you know, everything yeah. I am today comes from that moment. The question that um, arises in me now is, I know that you know that the last stage of the conventional hero's journey is to bring home the elixir. 
for you, what was the moment where you touched on or realized what your elixir was to share with the community? And then I think that that will lead into where you are now. Well, I mean, I think as you know, you don't just go around the monomyth once. <laughs> yeah. You know, so like I've gone around the I've gone around the mountain as they were a couple of times, but so yeah. I can tell you what the most recent iteration of the coming home was, okay? If you, we can flash forward. Mm. I mean, from 20, the short answer in between 20 and now is a string of 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 dharma masters, gurus, mentors including one where I spent 20 years under the apprenticeship of a great, uh, a great master, uh, a, a great master of both the psychological traditions and the uh, Tibetan Buddhist traditions. He was my mentor in, a, in, a, in the very traditional sense. And I don't think many people do this anymore. And I, I feel very blessed and fortunate to have done a full apprenticeship of, of, of nearly half of my life with one human being. Yeah. And even though I have two master's degree and a PhD, there was nothing, there was nothing even remote that touches the deepest learning of supplicating yourself to the mind of a master yeah. and learning from them through body, speech, and mind, their activities, their way of thinking, their outlook, their lifestyle, uh, the summation of their uh, totem of all their learning, which comes by way of their apprenticeship. And so you, they, you know, you don't just learn one lifetime from somebody like that. You learn several lifetimes. You, this is what in my tradition they call a lineage. So my teacher was a lineage master and I downloaded the lineage and anyone that thinks that they're going to get anything quick and dirty and spectacular (laughs) in a 30 day course or whatever, they can go fuck themselves (laughs) because human beings don't operate that way. Nothing good that's worth anything happens suddenly and quickly. Mm. And our culture doesn't recognize that it's highly exploitive. Uh, Our marketing strategies and our Instagram indicate and send signals and messages to your brain that you could have it all very quickly. Yeah. And one of my one of my pushbacks is nothing nothing that sticks happens quickly. You have to put the fucking work in. You have to commit for a very long time. And there are people with great big marketing budgets that are really uh, predatorial that that really want to instill and prey on people's fears and insecurities and self doubts and hopes and fantasies and childhood yearnings for a quick, miraculous, spontaneous enlightenment. I put in twenty years of work. I built programs. I built an institute. Uh, I, I laid everything on the line. I served someone for a very long time and I got the most incredible education. I was reared and matured and refined and, and uh, I, I was incredibly blessed. And at the tail end of that, there was a, a, an enormous betrayal and, uh, and, and, and a falling out. Oh, wow. And, and, and uh, it killed me. It was the single most painful thing I have ever been through far surpasses anything I survived through my abusive childhood. It was death. And I'm coming out of two years after that post uh, recovery. And so the last two years are what the Tibetans call the bardo, the between Mm. after death, there's a between phase. And the, the between phase is 
a time of shedding and a time of planting for the new life. And now that I'm on the, where I am now looking back, I would have it no other way Amen. because the student had to become a teacher and there was no way for the student to become a teacher without letting go of the teacher. And that's a death yeah. and it's painful and as tragic as it, the way it went down, the fact that it happened in the way that it happened in the way that I've recovered in the way that I see the world now, no, no longer naive and no longer insensitive and no longer idealistic and battle worn and battle ready. Yeah. Now I know nothing can kill me because if your own spiritual teacher can kill you, then nothing after that can ever kill you. And, and this, I think, I know you're into the psychedelic thing. I'm not into the psychedelic thing personally, but I think what both these experiences might point to is the great coming undone is yeah. required. And not only at the first stage of the hero's journey, when you leave the orchestra that you don't belong to, you leave the square peg that you've never, the, the, the round hole you'll never fit into, but also the coming back home at the tail end of the hero's journey, you have to go through an even bigger crisis to fit, to, to, to claim your right Damn to it. come back. And so we both, you and I, having studied that monomyth, know it as an archetype, but it's another thing to have your actual physical body go through it. Yeah. And not quickly either. <laughs> Two years is a long time. Yeah. I mean, it might as well been a massive car crash, like Aubrey's car crash, you know? Yeah. And that, that, that then, I, that separation, in that separation, I found my conviction as a teacher, not as a conviction as a student, but now as a teacher. Yeah. And a cadre of, of students and colleagues and peers came with me and we started our own thing. And so now I teach my own program. I teach a lengthy program. I don't teach this four week <laughs> shift. I teach a two year program. Yeah. I don't have thousands of followers. I have 25, 50, 200 people max at a time. Yeah. I invest deeply, deeply, deeply into them. They invest deeply, deeply into themselves. We go through a very rigorous curriculum. It's multi-training in the same way that on it might be for the physical body. We do it for the mental body and uh, it's it's cross training between philosophy, meditation, lifestyle, rituals. It's supplemented by a service project, mm. and then we go on an annual pilgrimage to the holy sites, which which are the most um, inspiring places on the planet, touched by great masters, including the living Buddha himself. And recently, we just came back from Sri Lanka, so I. Uh, my students and I went through almost a year of a program. Halfway through the program, we went to Sri Lanka together to the holy sites that are probably dating back to somewhere near the 300 BC wow. era. And their monks and masters have meditated, and there are incredible portholes of vibrancy. Yeah. And we did chanting and meditation and textual recitation and some deep spiritual and psychological work and some incredible bonding there. And then usually after those pilgrimages, people have a catalyst moment. Um, but then after a catalyst moment, and you might find this, you know, working with people who are interested in ayahuasca, it's very necessary that after the 
after the paradigm altering experience that they have something to come home to tap into. Yeah. 100%. Because oftentimes you'll go on a three day ceremony, right? And then you'll have to fly home and there's (laughs) nothing there for you. No network. Yeah. And it's the same thing with a two week pilgrimage to Sri Lanka or Kathmandu or Nepal or India or Ladakh or wherever I'm taking these people. When they come back, we plug right back into the program. And so what recently happened just two weeks ago, or even last week it was, I came back from Sri Lanka with some 25 people. We had the most outstanding Buddhist pilgrimage possible. And again, these weren't just green people. These are people that had embarked on a one-year journey of committed study, then went to Sri Lanka, had a profound two-week experience there, and then they're plugging back into the next year of the program, two-year curriculum. That's half of college, let me remind you. Yeah. I'm very proud of it because it's it's not easy to find someone who's ready to do a two-year commitment. You know, So the, the energy is incredibly refined energy. And what I guess what I'm getting at is to answer your question about what what uh, what the message is about coming home. This is what I learned from the chanting, a vibrational chanting that we did in Sri Lanka is that connecting with 25 people through vocal intonation and through resonance, uh, it deepened the knowledge. Absolutely, it took this took the conceptual knowledge and it went into the yeah. body and into the deep psyche. And we chanted together and then we brought that Pali chanting, which is thousand year old chanting back to New York City for our uh, resuming workshop. And those members of our community that couldn't go to Sri Lanka then got a taste of that vibrational frequency. Yeah. And then something happened for me. And this is fresh. So I'm just articulating this for the first time with you, if you don't mind. I don't. Beautiful. Is that... I discovered in myself what the next step on my own hero's journey is, Mm. which is the ripening of the ripening of people to find their confidence, to be of service to others. Yeah. The people in my program are ordinary people. I'm ordinary. I'm nothing special. We are peers studying a very ancient lineage in a very rigorous way with a lot of sincerity and we can do it. We can transform and we can have an impact. And I'm now totally aligned with the fact that we're not going to wait for the fucking Obamas or the fucking leftists (laughs) or the rightists or the reds or the blues or the blacks or the whites or anybody in some fucking fantasy world of leadership to come and make it right for us. The next phase of the planet is a grassroots movement of ordinary people finding their conviction and finding their confidence and understanding what their contribution is and then making their contribution within their modest sphere of influence. And as a network together, those spheres of influences will bleed until it's a tapestry that blankets the planet. Amen. And so my contribution is not thousands of people. I may have access to 50 or 100 people, and that is sufficient. I don't need an ego trip. I'm just going to help ripen them and help them and spur them along a curriculum of self-empowerment 
so that one person can go make a documentary movie on Standing Rock. One person's going to go into the advertising industry and make it right in advertising, make it more virtuous in advertising. A bunch of people are therapists. They're going to go with a Dharma heart into their therapy and work with the unconsciousness of patients. Another set of people are working in the um, classrooms with young minds. That's a great place to very Trojan horse bring in a <laughs> new curriculum of self-empowerment. Yeah. Other people are in uh, disruptive communities communications and technologies and marketing. Well, we need wise, virtuous stewards of the planet to infiltrate that structure too. Other people are working with bodies. So that's, we can do it. We have to be well prepared. We have to tap into a network of vibration that uplifts us. We have to habituate our minds towards this confidence. We have to know what our contribution is, and then we have to make it. And then we have to have the long-range view that nothing easy comes quick. Nothing, nothing's going to change quickly, but you have to be persistent. And I, 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 nothing anyone's going to tell me is going to dissuade me from what I have seen <laughs> and what I feel right now. Yeah. Yeah, it brings to mind the word enthusiasm, which means to be possessed by a God, you know, to be in enthusiasm is to be seized by a God. And that's exactly what I feel by you. Wow. I've never heard that, Eric. I've never heard that. Yeah. That's like the literal, literal translation. And it's, it's exactly what I feel from that. I love it. So if we go back to what Bunny, if what Bunny was saying, remember my friend Bunny, you asked me that question, what would he think? And I said, he, a, a nut. And then I said, very determined or whatever. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Enthusiasm is like, it's borderline psychotic, yeah. right? But then it, you, you're being taken over by God. You're, that's what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. When I catch fire, I'm taken over. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I feel. We could, and we will do more podcasts, but because we're closing to the end, the way that I like to end it is to ask some word association questions. And so uh, if if you're completely on board, I'm going to pull those up real quick. Do it. But yeah, I feel an absolute kinship, and I know that there's going to be more discussions that we're going to have. All right. Word or phrase that cuts to the core of who you are? Jesus. Jesus, got it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Not coming right now. Next question. Word or phrase that captures your life philosophy? <sighs> Refuge. What are you most afraid of? Death. What is your most persistent problem? Anger. Rule follower or risk taker? Risk taker. Is your need for control low, medium, or high? High. Are you more intellectually or physically competitive? Both. <laughs> Are you more critical of yourself or of others? Oh, myself. Pressure comes from standards. In and what does pressure feel like in the body? Panic. In your tribe, are you a king, warrior, magician, or lover? All. It all comes down to 
Love. Success is? Living according to your uh, ethics, your values, living your values. Love is? Being able to give and receive. My vision is of a green planet. I am. I am everyone. My purpose is liberation. The most defining moment of my life was taking uh, taking the throne, claiming the sword. Mm. I know this is the last question, and it's a couple-part question. Let's say that you have lived your full life, and you know that it is your last day. How would you want to spend that last day, and who would you want to spend it with? I'd love, I mean, I've already thought about this. I'd love, if I were to get cancer and I had a few days, I'd love to be surrounded by my wife, my beautiful kids, all my colleagues, students, and friends that have been doing this hard work with me. And I would love to just spend hour, my last hours with all of them. And, and, and for them to know what they truly have meant for me on my path, they have meant everything. And if you could write a little message on a card to give to your children right before you passed, what would you write? Love your beat. <laughs> Thank you so much, brother. Thank you <laughs> for your enthusiasm and for your story. And um, it was my honor to witness. Yeah, thank you for all your life's work that's led to this moment so that we could have this level of engagement that feels really real and unscripted. And, you know, I'm in tears right now. So those those questions have worked, you know, because they've moved me and we need to really be able to move each other. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, brother. And I can't wait to have you back on. Would love that. Yeah, the 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 the, the, the discussion has only just begun. Yeah. <laughs>